Cynthia Daniels is a Grammy and Emmy award-winning producer, engineer, and composer working extensively in film, television, and music. Her career has led her around the world, initially specializing in orchestral pop from big band jazz to Broadway, and then crossing over into producing records for young and seasoned artists in the rock, country, and folk rock world. She's owner and chief engineer at the Hamptons' first world-class recording studio, Monk Music. She has hosted or engineered sessions for Shaka Khan, Beyonce, Coldplay, Paul McCartney, Niall Rogers, Alec Baldwin, Julie Andrews, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Billy Porter. So, Cynthia Daniels, welcome to the creative process. Well, thank you for spending some time with me in my studio in East Hampton. Yes, uh, maybe I should just begin with, you know, you're a recording engineer, and you were speaking before about your route to that. Many producers, music producers, record producers, come at it from uh, two places. Mm -hmm. One is from the technical side, the recording engineering side, which is Mm -hmm. the side I began Mm -hmm. at, and the other is coming at it from being this musician. So I was much more trained in a studio as an engineer before I began producing. And often what happens is you get left alone by the producers and in the room and you end up making a lot of sonic decisions and you become the producer and after a while you ask for credit, you know, and then someone says, it's quite obvious that the engineer's been doing all the producing. I have music, I have records that I have produced. Mm -hmm. I have records that I have engineered and mixed and someone else has produced. I have recordings of my own songs that I have produced. Shaka Khan's... Classic Con, which was uh, done 18-piece big band and then an added 80 pieces in London at Abbey Road. And those are her favorite, some of her favorite songs. So that's what the essence of that album was. That was my engineering and mixing, and I co-produced it with someone else, Eve Nelson. And then another piece you'll probably be interested in is the one that I got my first Grammy for, which is The Producers, which was a Broadway show. And that was a big part of my career was Broadway. A Broadway show. It's like one of the... It's one of the biggest Broadway (laughs) shows. Yeah. Very humble. That's how you knew you were going to get the Grammy. (laughs) In fact, I'm sad, but I I didn't go pick it up. (laughs) I didn't go to the awards that Uh, year. Oh, yeah. Gosh. I knew it would win, but I had a job to do. And I thought it was, it would, I could have just postponed that job, but I thought the best way to honor the reception of a Grammy would be to actually just continue working as a normal person. There's a great song, it's called A Quiet Thing, yeah. and it's by Candor and Ebb, who wrote uh, Cabaret. And uh, the lyrics are, when it all comes true, just the way you planned, there are no trumpets or parades, it's a quiet thing. So you see, by the time you win a Grammy, you've probably been working for 20 or 30 years. A lot of us, many people are, of course, young and get their overnight sensation. But most overnight sensations are lifetime achievement. I ate some popcorn and called my mother and then regretted that I didn't go do it. I work with both Nathan and Matthew Matthew out here and Matthew's wife. Uh, I work with Sarah Jessica all the time. And I work with a lot of couples. Obviously, Mm -hmm. they have houses out here. Well, how I was drawn to engineering is perhaps the critical shift because, of course, I was drawn to music at a very early age. I came of age in the early 70s, late 60s. So huge uh, cultural and um, social shifts were occurring at that time. 
And my introduction to rock and roll, I was no different from a lot of young teens who were just completely turned on by music. And it was also a very much of a saving grace, music. I mean, I think many people have felt that way, that my ability to in involve myself and envelop myself in the music of the day, whether it was the Beatles or Pink Floyd or Yes, because I was into orchestral progressive rock, as well as David Bowie and people like that. It, it just, it pretty much, the Rolling Stones was the soundtrack to my life and pretty much saved me from whatever demons may be apparent in people's lives, young lives. And I liked the guitar, but I wasn't terribly good. And I knew at a very young age, because I did, I was not happy being a groupie. And my first boyfriend was a, one of my boyfriends in high school was a guitar player. I was not happy sitting on the couch and being with the other girls, the groupie girls. I wanted to be involved. And therefore, I was drawn to the mixing board. And that's really my first interest in the connection between creating or, you know, channeling music, being helpful, of service to music. And that was the point. How can I be of service to music? How can I make a living even? Yeah. And therefore, I, at by 16 years old, I was a senior in high school, I didn't know it was time to do anything. I wanted to work in music. And knowing that even a great guitar players didn't necessarily make a lot of money, I looked at the back of an album cover and saw there was a job recording engineer. And I thought, you know, that, that sounds like something I'd like to do. And I began to investigate what that was. And of course, we had no internet, so things went much slower. And there was a school in New York City, which was like a trade school, the Institute of Audio Research. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Boston University for film and broadcasting because they did not have sound engineering or recording engineering as a major. Yeah, there were no of... matriculated schools, none. You got mm -hmm. your certificate. It was a trade school. So I did that in the summer, and I began doing live sound. So by the time I was eight, 19, I was already involved in my career, wow. getting internships wherever I could in Boston, where I, I went to college. And it's quite courageous, too, because I imagine that time, uh -huh. uh, not only was there an actual infrastructure of training, education that we have now, but like yep. as, a, as a young woman... Yep. Were any of your colleagues yeah. young women? Or like, no, none of my colleagues yeah. were young women. And, you know, in retrospect, did I have my m multitude of Me Too moments? Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, they're things we put up with, yeah. You know, and they're things that all women put up with because men are entrusted or perhaps imbued biologically, and that is my apology for them, okay. with the necessity to go after their young women of their, typically of their age. Yeah. Meaning it wasn't unusual for a guy to hit on you. Okay. Yeah. Well, but music then, industry, like. Well, yeah. forget whatever industry you're yeah. in. You're 18 years old, mm -hmm. and there's going to be guys around, and... The only people I worked with were men. Mm -hmm. But was there quickly in a parent situation where there was a quid pro quo? That is, mm -hmm. if you get with me, then I will teach you more? Mm -hmm. Yes. And, right. and that was what we call now the Me Too move, uh, moment. One of the first of many. Which I did not take him up on. Mm -hmm. And I was in a relationship. Uh -huh. And I saw it immediately. I saw the door close. Mm -hmm. And he actually set me up. I was doing Who's sound this? in a really... Oh, nobody in particular. Oh, yeah. No one we'd know. I'm not oh, telling okay. on a Harvey Weinstein. It was just some guy doing sound at Paul's Mall and the Jazz Workshop, which were some very, very amazing 
music clubs in Boston. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I never spoke up about certain things that had happened to me in later years in recording studio situations where mm -hmm. that quid pro quo would continue. Yes. And I would continue to reject it and continue to suffer because of it. So the guy, the kid set me up, you yeah. know, he set me up. He said, this is your first night. You're going to do it alone mm -hmm. at the club. Oh, yeah. And he uh, kept the mic locker locked. Oh, right. And some very big bands showed up. Wow. The meters who were part of the, at that time, the Neville brothers. Oh. And there I was, a young girl. I looked very young. Uh -huh. I was pretty young, but I looked even younger without a key. Yeah. So he had to come save the day. Uh -huh. And that was my introduction to that. It, it, nothing stopped me. I took jobs I didn't know how to do. Mm -hmm. I did sound for punk rock bands. I showed up at clubs. I did everything I could possibly do to mm -hmm. involve myself in the business I wanted to be in, whether I knew how to do it or not. So there was a lot of learning on the job. And that, to me, was the much more courageous thing. Uncomfortable personal situations will come and go. But I was driven, totally driven. This is the late 70s. Oh. And I was involved in the punk rock scene in Boston, which then moved to New York and CBGB's and Max's Kansas City. And this was a huge cultural shift going on from the late 60s um, with psychedelic rock and roll moving into the punk movement. And I was right in the center of it. So I wasn't playing music, although I was trying to on my own time, yeah. I was doing sound for bands and clubs and bigger and bigger clubs sometimes. And then I was offered a job to go on the road with a very small company recording mobile recording, which was basically a van or a truck that you would rent. And we got a contract with ABC Radio. So when I was 22 years old, I was finished with college and I was completely involved in the machine. And I was going to give every waking hour that I could to it. And, um, you know, it was not, a, no journey is a straight line, no journey of success or failure. I believe it's a spiral. And as long as you end up a little further along, you can take your ups and your downs. But as long as you're moving forward in some way, then you're on the right track because there will be setbacks for everyone. And I had mentors all along the way, you know. And not, so not all of them were after me, as it were. Not all of them were doing quid pro quo. Those were isolated incidents, to be quite honest. No. I wasn't even aware that I was only a woman in a man's world. It didn't even occur to me that there was a difference. Seriously. Because you're resilient and you're independent, and so you value yourself. If they are seeing yeah. just the exterior, yeah. then your self-worth yeah. isn't related to their backward thinking. My entire life, I liked the things that boys were interested in. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I and it's was, sexy for them. It yeah. was very sexy for a guy to have mm -hmm. a girl who thinks like a man and looks like a woman. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty much going to be easy to get boys if that's what I was interested in. Yeah. Um, and who's talented and who loves their music or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it yeah. wasn't even about that. It was that I would sit down with other engineers and they would pull out cocktail napkin. We had many cocktail napkin conversations where they would always be willing. People love to teach. And I loved to absorb and learn. Mm -hmm. And so I was ex excited by the signal path of a live PA system for a rock band as I was going on the road and plugging into amusement parks where we were recording some very serious acts for that ABC contract. Ronnie Millsap, wow. Willie Nelson, mm -hmm. uh, Waylon Jennings, Lynn Anderson. We went all over the country recording them. And then that contract was over. It was time for me to move to New York. 
What a fantastic boot camp for yeah, learning. It, yeah, and boot camp had not even begun. Yeah. Because I thought I was an engineer. Yeah. Then I got to New York. You were in A and R. Then yeah. I got to A and R Recording Studios. The yes. R stood for Phil Ramone, one of the yes. top, one of the greatest, most well-known, revered engineer slash producers in the world. Continues to be. Sadly, yeah. he died, but this happens to us all. I understand. Yeah. So when I arrived at A&R Recording, I got put down in the basement, meaning the library. Yeah. That's where everybody started. Mm-hmm. If you could carry tapes and take notes, we didn't have computers. We had typewriters mm-hmm. and write out cards and keep track of every, all of the paperwork and the tapes and where they belonged and sharpen the pencils and get sessions ready and not clean. Oh, there was a great deal of racism and um, sexism at that studio and at all studios. Once again, mm-hmm. I would run into that. Mm-hmm. But that's a, that is actually another story. Yeah. What I mean to say is that I wasn't started as a cleaner, but I noticed all the African Americans were. Yes. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sugarcoat that. Mm-hmm. Back in the early '80s, black people were mostly relegated, if, especially if they were not educated. You were looking for people to clean the studio. They didn't, you know. In my studio, the interns start cleaning. I yeah. clean my studio. Yeah. Everybody starts, you know, somewhere, but, somewhere. Yeah. And but I did notice that. It was much harder for African Americans to rise, and that there were other women before me at that studio, but mm-hmm. a lot of them took off to become much more highly paid advertising executives and producers. Uh-huh. And that's to their credit. Yeah. <laughs> it was much higher paid. You had to really want to be an engineer. Yeah. You had to want to be the person who sits there for 14 to 16 hours a day, whatever's going on in the studio, take after take after take tedium after tedium, if that's what it is, to be immersed in the magic of watching a full orchestra play over and over and to hear it differently every single time. Because that's what an engineer is trained to do, to listen to music, to listen to whatever sound is coming through, whether it's film and post-production, but for me it was music and to hear the integration of all of the instruments and to learn how to pass that through your fingers, through the equipment of the highest quality in order to come out with a product, if you will, whether it was a a film, a sprocketed audio tape that would be married to a 35 millimeter film and then shown in theaters, or an ad that was gonna be shown on television in mono and stereo was just coming in. I mean, it was early. And some of those people who came through my first day at A&R Steely Dan was recording Gaucho, Dressed to Kill, which was a very big film. It was an Annie. (laughs) The musical Annie was being recorded in Studio A1, and Paul Simon had just finished One Trick Pony, and Billy Joel had just finished Glass Houses and was launching into his Nylon Curtain album, and there was nowhere else you would want to be but A&R Recording, where four rooms were going 24 hours a day, and to be part of that. Mm -hmm. And that a moment where I closed my eyes is because that is the time when I removed myself from the verbal idea and, and actually try to explain to you what the purpose is of my job, which is to channel and be of service to music and to understand every aspect of music, no matter how many years that takes. Be dedicate. part of another creative process and to have your own creative process yes. as a person who is channeling other people's music. 
Well, I think it's so moving and it's so important. I'm so glad that you addressed that. As a recording engineer, you're a part of what I consider the invisible arts. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's, yeah, the yeah. producers, the mm -hmm. directors, the people you're not seeing, even the teachers, all yep. the people behind the scenes whose energy yeah. and commitment makes things right. great. And I collaborate with students. We're also living in an age of an instant gratification culture. Right. And they go to school. They're not getting as much of this experiential learning that you had. Oh, yes. We don't have the... I have an intern program in my studio because yeah. I'm old school. Yeah. You're right. Because of this instant gratification yeah. and the technology to allow people to, on one hand, become a so-called artist immediately. Mm -hmm. And because software allows people to create a song in two seconds. With algorithms or things yeah. I don't even understand. Mm -hmm. Sure, and it's at your fingertips, yeah. and it's an app that anyone can afford. No longer are people required, artists required, to study, learn their craft, spend the hours, the 10,000 hours of mastery. Mm -hmm. I can only say mm -hmm. and hope, because I like to think of myself a futurist and someone who does not eschew that which is coming ahead and, and where only the past, that was the real way to do it. No, that there we will embrace be a, things. There'll but... be a synthesis yeah. and a new form of mastery because mm -hmm. there will never be a replacement for true mastery. But what, yeah. Yeah, but what we have is what you're saying. We don't have these programs now where you go, you're an intern, you're an assistant mm -hmm. for years. And now it all comes so easily. Mm -hmm. And there, ha you know, I, I have to believe that there are 10,000 hours required for mastery in some every art form. And anyone, I think, will tell you that. I mean, even some of the younger artists that you've worked with, like, amazing people like Beyonce, and mm -hmm. you were, just some of them, they've done their 10,000 hours, but please well, speak about someone that. Someone like that has yeah. been working so hard since she was a young kid. Yeah. yeah. This is no overnight sensation. Absolutely. You know, and there are people who are relying on software who don't have the talent, you know, because in my job, I, I look for people with raw talent yeah. and hope to help them hone that and f deliver them to who they truly are as artists. That is my job as a producer. Yeah. You go from being an engineer where you, you know, it's almost in the background now. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, I know my tools and mm -hmm. my software, and I continue to want to learn and to learn all the new, newer forms of music, some of which I don't care for, some of which I'm already an expert at because mm -hmm. I still enjoy learning. Yeah. But... I just came from an audio engineering society convention where a whole bunch of engineers and producers get together and esoteric papers are delivered as well as amazing stories from really successful people. And it's a brilliant four days. And, and mm -hmm. you know, we all get to see each other. We're the only person in the room who does what we do in the control yeah. room. So we don't understand that we're having the same experiences. And it's important to, it's so important to connect with each other yeah. and say, wow. You it know. can be a lonely process, it's I imagine. Exactly. Yeah. For, yes, yeah. And you're like, wow, your client does that too? Yeah. You know, you think maybe you're the only one making a particular mistake. Yeah. You think the only, you're the only one that anyone ever walked out on and said, you know, I really don't like this. You know, mm -hmm. or you maybe you're the only one who said, I'm suffering for someone else's art because I need to make a buck. It's yeah. important sometimes to be able to relate, yeah. always to relate to. And so this is, that's what that convention is. I think I it's some it's kind fun. of a trade show where everyone gets to listen to people saying, and this is what our gear does. That's the surface. Yeah. What really goes it's a on. community. Yeah, what really goes on is community and oh, people okay. who have been doing it for so long. So now I'm, I'm a legacy member. And it recharges you because it just reminds That's you. That's correct. All these dedicated, look at this room, all these dedicated people. Yeah. And you're part of that. You just are so insightful. Every time when, the, when we were in the car coming over, 
you would just say exactly you you just zone right in on on my profession which you don't really know about no but somehow I admire it. but it is the it is because it is part of the creative process in the general environment that all artists spring from right and right. so that's how you know mm-hmm. about the community and this sort of type of thing that you go through when you've spent that many hours yeah for any of these professions Going back to what we were discussing okay. is that we're here in East Hampton. Yes. And you should describe how you came out here. It's a love of place, but you, out of it, you've had so many collaborations as well. And yeah. Well, I still have an apartment in Manhattan, which I sublet. And I spent uh, the years for early 1980 until 2006 commuting to Manhattan and thinking of that as my home. And then in 1998, I bought a home here. And as an artist, instead of thinking this is a weekend getaway, the first thing you do is imagine uh, what, you know, what kind of small studio can I build here? Yeah. It's your life. It's not, you don't want to get away from it. It's not, not really. just work. It's, it's not just work. Yeah. yeah, it's like, and then it was like, wow, what if I could drive out here and be in this beautiful place with this great air and the ocean and work here, here. And right around that time, a lot of software was being developed in the late 90s and mid-90s to late 90s, where it was really quite possible to do your editing, even some mixing, and even some small recording sessions in your home, and people were doing it all over the place. So it was a natural progression for me to want to do that. And the longer I, the more I stayed here, now by that time I was 40, and I'd done a lot of hours. And I was, you know, I was in for more, but the the awakening of having a sort of a suburban existence, having a mailbox finally and not a little yeah. tiny metal thing that I could barely fit a magazine in and, you know, walk up five flights of stairs. Just I just wanted a driveway and a mailbox. Yeah. And I was always a city person. Yeah. I never wanted to go back to my suburban roots. Yeah. I found myself so really liking strange. the flowers. Yeah, but and it's not really sub to me it doesn't feel sub. No, nah, it's not really it's yeah. not completely rural. Only uh-huh. Manhattanites would consider the Hamptons the country, but essentially I live within walking distance of so many beautiful walks in the woods because mm-hmm. I'm in the northwest woods. I'm two miles from the bay, I'm three miles from the ocean. Mm-hmm. So I am with nature and th- this incredible solace a lot. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty natural for me to want to spend more time here. And so what I did was I would end up trying to cram all of my New York work, unless it was a full week of a Broadway show, which there were plenty of times, but I'd leave here at 4 a.m., get in Tuesday morning, and then leave at like midnight Thursday night so I could spend Mm -hmm. as many days here as possible. And maybe I'd work here. It was about being here. It was about, about mixing at 6 in the morning and delivering to Patty Lupone by FedEx on my bicycle. You know, just yeah. ride my bike to the CVS and drop off a, a, a mix to an insanely famous and wonderful artists like Patty Lupone. I remember that was one of the first projects I, I mixed out here yeah. in my own studio. And was just like, because I had one in my apartment too. I mean, just yeah. the more you can do by yourself, of course, it was all part of the uh, transition of the large studio format, which is pretty much collapsed in Manhattan. Um, you know, making use of technology. And as we spoke of before, sometimes people who don't know how to use the technology are hanging out a shingle and trying to compete with the people who, like myself, who have been doing it a really long time. And it's a very different subject. Yeah. 
And one day someone said, do you know how to do ADR, which is looping for movies where they replace lines. And I didn't, but they needed an ADR engineer at a place called World Cottage over in Bridgehampton. And uh, so I went over and learned how to do that quickly. And I quickly began to, to develop, I quickly became their audio engineer. And so in order to do that, I would drive out here for a 9 a.m. session, for a one-hour session from Manhattan. I'd go back to Manhattan if I had one that night. I didn't care because that's my, I wanted to work out here. Mm. And I liked where it was going. I liked that I was needed out here as well because that was going to be the beginning of my client base out here. And that studio sold itself to another one. I was inherited as the chief engineer. And by then we had Alec Baldwin and Rodney Yee and Roy Scheider, who became a friend, and Richard Gere and Christy Brinkley and all kinds of wonderful people who live out here were coming into their tiny little booth and doing whatever it was they needed to do for their voice work or their movies. And Julie Andrews, I think you yeah, got Yeah, Julie hadn't, that. I hadn't met her yet. These were the few people yeah. I did know from that other studio in Bridgehampton. And then that studio moved to West Hampton where the owner lived more close. Mm-hmm. And then they helped me build in my little house that I had bought in 98. And I mean a little house in one of my rooms. I had always made every room a recording studio. I put, there. Were, I, I just spent years putting up acoustical baffling and uh, absorptive materials, turning that room into a studio, and then realizing, yeah, yeah, the room down, the TV room would actually be better for that. My whole house was just a recording studio, and I didn't live with anybody, and that worked. And so they helped me sort of build a booth, and I inherited their local business because they moved to West Hampton, which is not the Hamptons. Mm-hmm. That is on the west of the Shinnecock Canal, mm-hmm. and people in the Hamptons, East Bridge, Sag Harbor, and Montauk don't want to cross the Shinnecock Canal. They want to be out here in their rarefied atmosphere in their home, near their home. And as I developed my business more into that room and was doing bands and local bands, and I had already been mixing people, I had already been working with bands out here who had heard about me as an engineer who had come from New York and was Mm -hmm. living out here and could help them produce their records. I was already doing work for a local artist as well, some of whom are excellent, Nancy Atlas, etc. And that's when I started my radio show around 2009, and I was still working out of this little tiny space, and then I got a partner, and then it was time to build a nice new recording studio because mm-hmm. it was really a deal breaker. You cannot run your business, which is loud, with clients coming in and out and live with another person for very long. Yes. So we thought we would just bump out a little space for my my studio and then we ended up bumping the whole house out by several thousand feet two or three thousand square feet and I decided to invest in a major uh, undertaking with the top recording studio designer known as Walter Storick or Beth Walters and John Storick who are a married couple and have been building studios all over the world since the late 60s. His first studio, his student project was Electrical Ladyland in New York, which is one of the most famous studios in the world. So he was the right guy. And, of course, he had a great love for East Hampton because he used to have a house here. Once I built it in 2011, then I had a space that was commensurate with the aesthetic and the technical acumen of a New York studio. And then I didn't have to say to anyone, I'm doing A work in a C space, believe me, (laughs) which is what it's like when you're working at your house. Yeah. Richard Gere walked in, and he's like, really? Your house? You know, and it's like, oh, yeah, lots of people are doing it. Not as well as I am, of course. You just can't. 
You can't do that. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many Grammy nominations you have on your wall. You need a space where people walk in and go, I had no idea this was here. Wow, it feels good in here. Wow, I'm so happy you're here. And that has happened time and time again. And yeah. just go to my website, monkmusicstudios.com, if you want to see who some of those people are. That's amazing. I have a list here, and I don't even know if you could even talk about all of them. But I mentioned uh, Julie Andrews. You worked on the producers as well. Well, the producers was in yes. Manhattan fully. Yeah. I didn't do anything here on the producers. That was a yeah. while. That was in t- 2001. Tony's, Grammys, Emmys, you name it, that show really swept. Can I just read some of these? Yeah, sure. Alan Alda, Alec Baldwin. Oh, you're in the A's. I am in the A's. Shaka Khan. Let's talk about Shaka Khan. Mm. Well, Shaka Khan is an interesting project because I had been referred to Eve Nelson and Bernadette O'Reilly, who had a production company in Manhattan, to do some live recording in the village at West Beth Theater of Sandra Bernhardt. And so I developed my relationship with them through the Sandra Bernhardt recordings, and we did a second show as well. And in that time, I I really, I became known because of my probably over a hundred Broadway and off-Broadway show cast recordings as an orchestral pop and all the traditional pop vocalists I've worked with from Barbara Cook and K.T. Sullivan, a lot of amazing old school Annie Ross, (laughs) Margaret Whiting, some really serious standard singers of, of the time which was 80s and 90s and into the thousands. So I became known to a lot of people as an orchestral recording engineer. Now, I knew that rock and roll was like deep in my heart, and that's what I listened to, but I was also really good at recording a 60-piece orchestra, which I did for television as well, because back then there were composers for all the networks. So I was working on the wide world of sports redux and the theme for 2020 and da-da-da-da, white world news tonight. I was working on those themes and getting to record them myself. And yeah, we had 60-piece orchestras. And soap operas had huge budgets. And that's where I developed relationships with musicians I'm still working with today. Those were fat days, okay? That was the golden age We when the music business had money for composers. Now we have music libraries and it's all changed. So they called me because Shaka Khan wanted to record a standards record because some of her favorite songs like To Sir With Love and Is That All There Is by Peggy Lee or who was was made famous by Peggy Lee and Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger and Diamonds Are Forever, etc. Those those were her favorite songs. So she got together with Eve Nelson, who is a great arranger and composer of her, her own right, but also a player and an arranger. And they got together and... When Eve needed to find an engineer who could record a big band as well as strings, because we didn't know we were going to record the London Symphony Orchestra in Abbey Road for that project yet, they called me because I was the only engineer they knew who could do that. And so my relationship with them was one of friendship as well as, of course, of really creative work. And so it was a high point for all of us because we went to Clinton recording. We recorded with Joe Sample was one of the arrangers, who's one of the greatest known jazz pianists. And there was a lot of, you know, he did a great arrangement for Around Midnight, which is a jazz standard that Shaka sang. And because there are lyrics put to almost every jazz standard. And I had a huge part of my career in the 80s where I was recording a lot of jazz musicians, Kenny Barron and all kinds of people. I was in my 20s and I was learning by recording the greats direct to two track, which is another skill where you don't get a chance to mix, you mix live. And that's how, that's oh, where that's I really began my tested. career. Tested. Big band, 17 pieces, and you had to mix 
at that time, directed two track well, the way the old kind of jazz. In fact, yeah. doing that, yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. You're riding, you're riding with the music, and yeah. you don't know what the cues are coming up. I I love that kind of work, and I wish that mm-hmm. I did more of it now. It's exciting. Well, this notion of of live. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the experiences you've had with music, and now the way music is being packaged, just so yeah, different. All lost. programmed, all programmed, and you just stick a singer on any track. So, so let's go back Shaka to Shaka. I think that one of the most bombastic arrangements and pieces of music uh, ever written were some of the theme songs to the James Bond movies because they're just notorious for their thematic content and the French horns and the trombones leading them up. Diamonds Are Forever, sung by Shaka Khan and played by some of the greatest jazz musicians in the world in New York and then augmented by a a 80-piece string section and percussion section at Abbey Road in, in London. Eve had a studio out here, a small one, like mine. I decided, and she said, let's mix it out here. Let's not go into New York where every hour is going to be charged. Let's just mix it on our Pro Tool system, which is called In the Box. Let's get some great gear, outboard gear, and let's mix this thing here, where we love to be, in East Hampton. She had a house in the Springs. I had a house here. I took all my equipment from Manhattan. It was 2006. I said... From now on, I go to New York, but I live here. And that is why I used 2006 as the time when I moved to East Hampton and my base was here. And I began taking Broadway shows out here and mixing in my own studio. And I did, it sounded good, you know. That's a whole other aspect, which is the equipment that you're using being almost superfluous. Once you have an idea of what how to balance music mm-hmm. and the room allows you to have the correct bass response and reverberation so that you're not putting too much of any of these very important and malleable elements, meaning bass is one of the hardest things to control and in a room, knowing whether you have the right amount of bass, meaning is your mix going to sound as good outside the studio as it does inside the studio? Because that's the critical thing about building a studio and a room. Accurate mix room means does it sound just as good out there? Are that clients just as happy? Are you happy when you put it in the car? I still go out to the driveway. I play it in my car, I play it in the client's car, and I get a lot of information. It's those involved with creating art that understand that no matter who we are, we find ways to share our experiences with each other because that is fundamentally what it means to be human. We channel our stories and our personalities into the arts, and in fact, we want others to dance with us. We want them to read our writing, to see our paintings, and we want them to listen to our music. Cynthia Daniels shares with us her story of her involvement with music and how her passion for it ultimately stems from listening to it, listening to her predecessors who followed similar paths of aiding human connection through creating their art, and I'm able to look back at my own story to understand my passion for music. I remember my dad came home from work one day. He picked me up and put me on the counter, and he said, I got you a gift. This was when I was five. As he pulled out the small plastic white thing from his messenger bag, my eyes lit up. What is it? As I took the object from his hands, he told me it was a first generation iPod shuffle and I could carry thousands of songs around in my pocket, a line he stole from Steve Jobs. A year later, my mom got me a pink Nintendo Game Boy that I loaded games into. I would put the tiny speaker up to my ear and listen to the theme songs. I didn't care about the games. 
Fast forward two years later, and I remember gloomy Sunday drives to run errands with my mom, when she would play the CDs of Dark Side of the Moon, Continuum, Poses, and so many more. I breathed in the frequencies leaking from the poor quality of the car speakers and sang along to words I didn't need to understand to know the music was good. When it was the four of us, my mom, my dad, my sister, and I, my parents would play bluesy jazz like Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald's Under a Blanket of Blue, and me and my sister would sing along in the back seats, and I always imagined a white, beach house-looking bedroom with a blue blanket with wind under it, rippling on the bed like salty waves. And Louis and Ella danced around the bed, singing. My family went to one of the Princeton University auditoriums to see an entire set of a solo jazz pianist, and I sat in the audience with my feet up, knees tucked into my chest, and hands covering my ears, whispering wails that I wanted to leave because I couldn't understand what he was playing. I have so many more of these stories, all involving the effects of music in my life, but none of them would be important had there not been a common thread established. That is the thread of connection which can be followed through one's own life or can be created among multiple lives. And this connection that relies on communication is utterly human. And I, among plenty of others, am so grateful that we have music to help us create that connection. We decided to mix it here. Yeah. We mixed a great sounding record. That was the end of that. Within a couple of years, I guess 2006, that's five years, my partner began des designing the house. I began talking to people about the studio. And by August 2011, I had my first band in here putting the studio through every pace it could be put through. Every plug was used, every mic. Joe D'Elia and Thieves, really solid, amazing musicians, several of whom I, I record with uh -huh. to this day for as go-to studio musicians, meaning I've got a kind of a cadre of musicians, just like we did in New York, go-to guys, and they are their guys. I, I have a woman, a lead guitar player in my band, OCDC, but, and she is quite amazing with it. As far as, you know, I have a band, we call them the East End Wrecking Crew. So Randolph Hudson on guitars, Cliff Black plays guitars and bass, James Bernard on drums, and then there are many other wonderful musicians out here, and you better believe I've got all their numbers and we all have personal relationships. And we have a beautiful, inclusive, local music community out here. Yeah. where we perform for other people, we perform for each other. There's always open mics. There are always places to gig. The money's not huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you have good music festivals, good arts yep. Yep. festivals here. Yep. I'm on the board of the Sag Harbor American Music Festival, and every year we try to bring the best, mostly American and Americana music. You know, yeah. A little taste of jazz, a little taste of rock, but mostly they, I, there's a lot of bluegrass and a lot of Americana folk. When they don't want to only focus on local musicians, but there will always be some of the same bands that people are, they're very popular forming there. So tell me a bit more about your band, your music, what you look for in that other experience. Well, I have been writing words uh, since I was very young, a kid, and did some graduate work in poetry, as a matter of fact, a journaler. Bruce Wallace, one of the artists you've been speaking with, he and I are very close friends, and we, we certainly used each other as a, a writing backboard for, for years. What I usually do for the journaling is not just write for myself, but I usually have a couple of friends where, where I express a lot of thoughts and, and feelings and stories, and, you know, I've started a book of short stories, and so I've always, always been into writing and consider myself an okay writer. 
perhaps I had, you know, at times, at the best of times, I have an original voice, if not verbose. And I'm an avid reader. So I began, I produced a band, a woman called Marion Magna, whom I met through Randolph Hudson, this great guitar player. And the three of us pretty much created an album, her third album, Grey Matters. I did the programming and percussion programming and helped her develop the groove for every one of the songs as she uh, played the piano, did the vocals, and Randolph Hudson did all the guitars. And so it's actually a really cool collaboration. And she asked me to sing on the track, and I began writing songs. She said, let's get a band together. So we put a nice band together. It was my first band. It was in 2010. It was very, very exciting to perform at the Talk House, Guild Hall, nerve-wracking, and something I'd, I had done in the 80s in various places, Folk City and places like that. So I had performed and written my own songs in the early 80s. And then I, I took a, so a 30-year hiatus from playing. and or You know, I'd been playing, but never performing. But we had this really great music scene out here, and we had this music store, and everyone would come and do jams once or twice a week, and we all met each other, and there was a lot of playing going on. And so I began to write a lot more, many more songs. And when that band dissolved, I performed solo for a while and then decided it was time to put my own band together. So, of course, I took James Bernard as drummer, and my long-term friend, uh, Sarah Green, who's a really great lead guitar player and blues guitar player, whom I had produced records for in the 90s, three of them, in fact. So we knew each other really well musically and have a very good chemistry, and we started a band. I really started the band, and I called it OCDC as just a little joke. In fact, I think it was Bruce's wife, Margaret, who thought of the name, just a silly name, and kind of expresses the fact that we have a very eclectic blend of music, everything from punk to jazz, inflected blues, and that's pretty much where we are. And so, you know, we're eclectic, and, and I write a lot of the songs. But we each, we both write for the band. And I have a song that's it's, it's very current. It's quite dark. It's quite punky. I produce it with another friend, another artist, my first artist I ever produced in the early 80s, Kendall Marsh brought him back into my life, and we uh, kind of co-produced this track. It's called Dope, and it's about addiction. And uh, there's a video on YouTube that goes with it. We have a very broad range. Your career spans all of these genres, even the band itself. Oh, oh yeah. I, I got a jazz gig, which is a favorite genre of mine. I decided I would teach myself to actually read music, which I only read charts. I was not a great music reader. I could get through it, but, you know, I wasn't a great sight reader. I taught myself. I began practicing three hours a day. I would get up at 4.30 in the morning, 5 in the morning, and practice three hours every day. And I've learned how to play jazz, guitar, and to read music, which are two things I've always wanted to do and never did because I was busy producing other people's music. So that's something, as an artist, it, it, it has inspired me beyond belief. And as a result, I've gotten just more and more excitement and a deeper relationship with my first love, music. Exactly. Because that is the thing is to keep in touch with that, what yes. drew us to the art, whatever art yeah. it is. Yeah. Initially, the I think it's a childlike wonder and play. Yeah. You know, so, they call it yeah. playing. Yeah. But and I, yeah, and it's hard work, yeah. but, but it's four hours goes by, I don't even notice. Yeah. And of course, I developed carpal tunnel because I'm not a spring chicken. So that was the downside. But... It has made me come alive again in ways that I hadn't felt ever.
and keeping your ears fresh. In my brain? brain. I'm just wondering, I don't know if you can quantify it, but I can't imagine the diversity of knowledge that you have across so many genres. What has that given you? And like, what does that bring? So you can bring that from one project to the next. I guess the question is really, how is it different? you worked with Mel Brooks. You've worked with so many different mm. jazz musicians. Yeah. You know, Beyonce, with all well, Julie Andrews. Well, it all depends on what job I'm doing. Because yeah. with Beyonce, I'm hosting the sessions. And there are several, many engineers who work with her. Yeah. With Julie Andrews, we're doing a lot of movie work. So I'm doing a lot of voice work or helping her with a really cool show called The Green Room, Julie's Green Room, which is kind of a a Muppets meets the actor's studio. (laughs) (laughs) And so we we do, you know, we do movie work. We do ADR work. She's in a lot of movies. She's a little bit older now. And she did not let the accident with her voice keep her back from writing books. We won a Grammy together for some of her books. She's written with her daughter, Emma Hamilton. And it's just... She is an amazing artist, and more importantly, one of the kindest, most friendly, caring, and open human beings I've ever met in my life. And there's just probably nobody who's met her who wouldn't say the same. So that makes her very special as a human being. She's the, the first movie I saw was Mary Poppins. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, she really like is Mary Poppins. She really is Mary Poppins. <laughs> she is so kind and so I was like my friendly. Mother, and I wanted my mother to be like her. Why could she be like her? Well, you know, we all wanted my mother to be Mary Poppins. <laughs> I just even want her handbag. That handbag. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it a magic handbag? Yeah, yeah like, they just came out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> We all are looking for a little magic in our lives, and I think that's what art and the creative process allows for, above all, is that in a world that can be either way too predictable and mundane and create tedium, the creative mind for myself is the curious mind, the mind that's always learning, and allowing yourself to uh, make mistakes, but to generate from your, your core, from your soul, and from your experience, something new and experimental and something that is unique to yourself. And it's it's like a daily gift you can give yourself, which is why I practice every day. And that's what the artistic and creative experience is for me. So in a world that's either so impossible to control, such as political situations and, and world hunger and you know, gargantuan spiritual malaise, which is what I believe this world is suffering from because we are way too identified with our animal nature and way too unidentified with our spiritual nature, which is what I believe is required as a transformation for this world to exist, mm-hmm. is for us to become less selfish and more compassionate human beings or we're doomed. And then we have something like Trump in the, in the White House, you know, w- which is the antithesis of any of that. And so in a world which can either be, you know, you can get up and brush your teeth and do it again, called Beer and Remote Control, great song by the Indigo Girls, which is how so much of America lives its life. You know, they, they simply endure their existence and come home and shut the lights. You know, it can be painful to stay awake or it can be revelation to become awake, which is why people are learning how to meditate and why that's coming into schools, because there's an awakening to yourself and to the goodness and possibility in this world. And people like David Eagleman, who calls himself a possibilitarianism, I think, some silly name 
and he's the first to have a sense of humor. He's one of the most original thinkers out there, David Eagleman. Wow. Oh my God, he's amazing. You've got to check out. And something, things like TED Talks. Why would you need to listen to repetitive stress music? <laughs> when you can listen to a TED Talk, which would open your mind or podcasts where your mind can be consistently opened and you can come alive and have a second chance every day of your life. And that is how I live my life. And that is how I teach people want to teach people to live their lives. And that is how I want my artists, the artists I work with, who entrust me with their music and their souls, to understand that every day can be a new beginning and that there's so much wonder in the world. It's so much to, you know, and that's, that's where I'm at. Well, it certainly comes across, we were talking before, I can understand why your collaborators, why they come back and they generated so much loyalty because it's about passion. It's not pitch. It just communicated yep. your love for Good. music, not just, you know, on a, some kind of technical level. That yep. just, it's the spirit. You love yep. it and you you put the hours in to make sure it's that. That's correct. Um, Thank you. And for seeing that so easily. You just, <laughs> you're a really open conduit with so what you're doing here as a someone who's an artist in her own right and also talking with others and experiencing our minds together. You know, you're really very good at you know, opening the channel. So well, thank you. Well, thank you. But I think what you've said, oh, those, your remarks are very inspiring. I mean, we recently, you mentioned Trump, you know, some people think we have problems in the world that beyond, you know, we don't just need to fund arts, but they are for so many people what makes life worth living and I like the way you put it is that it gives us a second chance yes the yep. other lines you can lead yep. the lines of intensity yep. and meaning yeah and every day you can if you've had enough sleep yeah <laughs> big proponent of sleep getting rest uh, as human beings you know copper criminal we all lay down to put our PJs on and lay down and we rest. Do, we sleep we dream we, we dream. become artists again yeah not artists in our waking yeah. life yes and I think that if you look at any child they're like all born artists. Yeah. You leave yeah. them alone in the room, they're making. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. That's our Isn't that it wonderful? Yeah. That is our true nature. And, yeah. and yes, sure, it has to get channeled through school in terms of useful living and all the different ways that schools either tamp down creativity in the, in the name of sort of working as a, a cohesive society. You know, not everybody can be a crazed individual working outside of the line. So there's a place, time and place for all of it. You yeah, know, but, I, but we can all have access to it. Yeah. And there's access to book. Yeah, to book. Yeah. I mean, and artists need, we believe me, yeah, we need discipline. We do. That's and, the only way you succeed with the discipline. Yeah, well, those are the 10,000 hours. That's the sitting down and doing the work, yeah. you know. And how do you think that we can we better integrate, encourage creativity in our education models? That have shied away from it, or I mean, in all disciplines. Well, I mean, where I, I mean, I grew up in a certain time and place, and we had art class and sports mm -hmm. class, and we had required creativity hour mm -hmm. and required listening hour. Most of the time, I spent, you know, dreaming about other things. But I mean, I suppose keeping all of that in the schools is good. But I think there's a lot of there are a lot of new avenues now that are opening up, and also these uh, magnet schools where you know I think there's a lot of possibility in educational systems. And I think that education in general is where the main problem is in, you know, the perpetuation of poverty and a kind of a welfare existence. And 
And the fact that, unfortunately, you know, socially, we're very, we're very socially determined as young people. And so, you, you know, you go with your peer group and it's just not cool to be educated and to study in the places where education is the only thing that's going to get them out of realizing that, you know, money is where it's at. And you could do that with drugs or guns, you know, or become a rap artist. Like this is where rap is like such a brilliant and hip hop is such a brilliant escape has been such a brilliant and sports mm-hmm. for, you know, for underprivileged urban areas where there's just been generations of welfare states and where education wasn't cool. All of a sudden, it is cool to be creative. It is cool to spit and make poetry every day, all day long, you know, with each other. I mean, like guys sit around, guys who are used to be, you know, all about physical violence. They they sit around and they're just like rapping. I just love to hear about that. Some don't, as always. And, you know, and I just love to hear like my 18-year-old artist kid like oh yeah like we sit around on a saturday night and we like spit poetry at each other we spit rap at each other we like i'm just like wow you guys sit around and like create in front of each other and he's like yeah it's like kind of nerve-wracking and i'm like wow i'm let's wow that that beats sitting around getting high and just finding chicks i mean that men are sitting around relating poetry to each other and trying to rhyme because it's cool that's one of the most brilliant things that's ever come along you know and it's immediate and it's from the street or it's from experience. We have an inner city school program and they continue to impress me because they don't have the access. And to see them, it's actually keeping them in schools, after school writing clubs, after yep. school open mics. Yeah, it's all of a sudden yeah. it's cool. And oh my God, art is cool now. Yeah. That means, you know, that means that they can be, that they, and I say they because there's an us and them. Yeah, I grew up in a privileged existence and believe me, my youth was way wasted on the young. I was not a good student at all. I was way too hyperactive. But I had a lot of opportunities, some of which were squandered. But um, I say there's an us and them because, yeah, I have no idea what it's like to grow up into poverty. So if there's another way and and that our business is is, is promoting this kind of art, which is, you call it what you will, but hip-hop is a synthetic form it's a synthesis which all art and creation is a synthesis of that which has come before what is the big forecast on the billboard grammy issue will hip-hop finally dominate frankly it's dominating a lot in my book i like it i like it's mainstreamed and from something that was like a the language of protest or like yeah it has all these different forms and i like to see frankly i like to see the old white boy uh a club phased out again because this is a new day Mm-hmm. And we've got a lot more to say than straight edge, boarding school, whatever education. And I'm, I'm totally generalizing and I don't want to do that anymore. But mm-hmm. there's a lot more going on out there. Yeah. And we need to replace the old system because right. it is not working. Yeah. I don't have any answers except um, to infuse uh, the world with compassion and embrace that which is um untrod, but perhaps, you know, take more risks because everyone's afraid. Why do you think the record companies are so unbalanced? Because they were, they're afraid to take risks unless something's a sure thing. So everything is sort of turned out in a, a very similar model to the model before, because that worked last year, you see, and that, that's and it's not like our, re, Yeah. Same old song, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. Yes, because no, everyone's afraid to take a risk. And that's how we've ended up where we are at this point. You know, 
I was wondering about for you, for someone who's come up before a lot of these technologies were developed and how your ear, it must be so sensitive. I, I don't know that I have that same sensitivity. I mean, I don't know what it's like for you. Well, you didn't train it, that's all. Yeah. But I don't know what it's like for you to go into restaurants or even sometimes we'll talk about some of the interesting music that's being made. But to my mind as well, because I'm a bit old fashioned, I listen to some music that's just almost all digital, right? It's like almost fully digital. I have not that much interest in, I don't care if it's digitally created because at this point in my life, everything passes through a digital mm -hmm. uh, stream, which is basically an, an analog signal. A voice is ultimately going to go through my, my digital interface because that's how I operate my mm -hmm. editing software, my mixing software, only to go back out through speakers and analog, that is non-digital gear, which has a warmth that, that replaces some of the digital coldness, and that's a huge generalization because it's another subject. But when I hear what's on the radio and it's sort of all extremely cookie cutter and sounding very, very similar, I'm always hoping it's not a matter of my age, that it very much sounds the same and is passionless. Totally. Oh, there's a lot of that. And this has gone I, through this thing. Yeah. What is that called? That it distorts the voice. So well, like you know, that's okay. That's another subject yeah. because vocoder and, and, and vocal distortion is, it's kind of an aesthetic mm -hmm. that is being embraced in music. Now that does not bother me so much as hearing dit, 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 we call the millennial whale. So much music is based on the music that has come before whatever genre it's in. But this four on the floor, you know, basic electronica music that's being churned out and frankly performed by some people who actually have really good instruments but aren't allowed to use them because that's not, you know, I was shocked when I heard Christina Aguilera's voice. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And I'd never heard her really sing till she sang Lady Marmalade at the Grammys with Queen Latifah. And I just realized that there are so many artists who absolutely cannot sing who are purported as great performers or great artists out in the forefront winning the awards and I have a lot of feelings about it a lot to say about it and the one thing that is difficult for me is that if I eschew a genre of music such as the cookie cutter of uh, four on the floor disco ish electronic every vocal sounds the same melody is missing I fear that I sound like my parents saying that John Lennon was the devil incarnate because my room was filled with posters of long-haired men with beards and music that was screaming, and I was in love with it. And my parents thought it was the worst thing that had ever come down the pike and was not music at all. So I'm always careful when I say, this is just not music. Because, but there's a difference. But, but yeah. I know the difference. Mm -hmm. I do know the difference because I've experienced it all, and I know what's put into it and I know how it's created, and I fear to ever sit in judgment of any art on the record. I can tell you what I like. I can tell you why I think something's cookie-cutter and passionless and soulless, and that it doesn't move me, and I wouldn't bother listening to it, and how there's a great proliferation of that. If I go on the record, I may, to a young person, sound just like an old person. As a professional, I know that I am much more informed and probably know exactly what I'm talking about. But as I said, I want to be a futurist. I don't want to say, you know what, this, you know, I think Kanye West is vile, okay? I think he's a vile, insane human being. 
and he's hugely popular with some people. Why is that? That's more interesting to me. You know, I don't want to listen to Kanye West because I don't want to listen to abuse of women or anyone. I don't want to listen to people singing pretty much nonstop obscenity without any, any place to go and no conclusion and no solution. It just doesn't interest me in the least. And no, I don't consider it art. So there, I've gone on the record. However, well, yeah. yeah, part of it being an artist is actually making choices and deciding yeah. what you like so yeah. that you yeah. can follow that. So it's And that's okay. not only yeah. part of being an artist, that's part of being a thinking, feeling human being in touch with their aesthetic self. Just try to be careful. You know what I mean? For the all yeah. reasons that I gave you. Not to say, because I know that I love where I came from. I know why I love David Bowie. And yeah. you know what's very interesting? Is that a lot of the music that I listen to as a young person is very popular now with young people. So I have to say that was good music. Got it. When something lasts. Yeah. But you know, you've produced or you've engineered classical music, jazz. So you yeah. really have a sense. Not too much classical. Yeah. You have, but you have. Yeah, you sure. have a knowledge. So you have a respect for that. But I think it's all about keeping the senses alive because that's yeah. the real risk that we yeah. have. And I, I, I meet even yeah, very young actually... people, students that yeah. they are in a way jaded. And it's yeah. very strange. Already jaded. Already jaded yeah. or, or already can't hear. They listen to music a lot, but in somehow not hear it. Yet. There's also a lot of distortion in yeah. terms of the compression, and I mean true distortion and true scientific studies that express that distorted music or over-compressed music, especially when it's put incredibly close to the ears, which is how so many people have been tuning out the world. I'm a huge proponent against earbuds. No one should be sticking anything even remotely loud near their ears, yeah. eardrums, nobody. That's the, one of the worst inventions to ever come along was an earbud, mm. ever. And I never wear them. But I know a lot scientifically about this, but one thing I do know is that overcompressed music is distorted music, and distorted music distortion has an introduction of harmonic frequencies that um, absolutely create an, an inurement and an inability to discern certain sounds and basically make people deaf. Okay, mm -hmm. bottom line, new music is overcompressed, ultra distorted, and even at low levels will create deafness. Mm -hmm. and, and it's as scientifically proven. Yeah. And that means we've got this entire generation. Somehow I feel like with all the internet and the, our, that attention disorder that we discuss, we're synthesizing into new human beings. You know, oh, we have the robots to be close to machines. Yeah, we are. We're something's happening, and you yeah. don't know what it is. That's to quote an old Bob Dylan song, do yeah. you, Mr. Jones? And there's always something happening, and you don't know what it is. I thought it was uh, funny or tragic that I think in Guantanamo Bay they would torture people by playing like really loud heavy metal. Or I can remember, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, how about that? It's like... Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I'll never, forget, I'll never forget going to the tunnel, which was this really big disco, and all these speakers were blasting, like, aircraft-level, decibel-level music at me, and it wasn't because I was a prissy recording engineer. It was because it was absurdly, assaultively loud, and I remember running a gauntlet with my hands over my ears, screaming. It's just like listening to a subway come screeching up the track. Yeah, there's so much sound yeah. pollution. Like. There is sound, heavy sound pollution. Is there visual pollution? Oh, I think as well with the number of ads we're bombarded with. Yeah. If we're not careful, yeah. we can get 
So is graffiti not visual pollution when there's an excess of it? I think that, I mean, that's one reason why you're drawn to the nature out here. I mean, I think that I don't mind some right. forms of street art, but you yeah. don't want to be. You want to enjoy your hearing. You want to enjoy your sight. Mm-hmm. And you need, this is something a lot of artists have spoken to me about, writers, visual mm-hmm. artists, whatever. You actually need the empty space. Yes, you do need the empty space, you which is why I didn't, yes, like it out here. Yeah. yeah, you need the silence in order to hear. And I think that that's very important f- for creativity. Which know? is why meditation is so important exactly. and it's now being taught in schools that yeah. even little, particularly little children with their febrile minds and their heavy curiosity and, and the, this unbelievable amount of input coming out of their machines, which they're allowed to have at their faces all day long. There's no time for space. And then therefore there's no time for intuition to enter into your psyche. And without that... You have no access to who you truly are. You are only a reflection of what's out there. Mm-hmm. And there's been too, society is largely a reflection of what it's told, what you're told to do, right? Yeah. Individuals are a reflection of their society and it's, there's got to be a balance. I, f- I feel lucky to have come up during that period when people were reading more, were listening more, yep. and music was taught more in the home. So tell yep. me about your upbringing yep. a bit. Okay. My family loved musicals. Broadway musicals. So it's actually completely coincidental that I would end up recording the revivals of some of the greatest shows I'd ever listened to as a kid and loved Music Men, the Fantastics. I worked on so in the theater with my sister who wanted to be an actress. We worked in the theater as young teenagers and in local theater and we just played musicals nonstop and we all sang around the house all the time. And I had several fathers. When I was seven, my mother married a Chinese man. And I had an entire Chinese family for seven years. And there was a lot of Chinese influence, language, and food and culture. But he was also an electronic engineer and an unbelievable genius and a very, very violent alcoholic. But a brilliant, brilliant man who did everything from make his own go boards, which is this beautiful Asian game. And he made me things for school. Like he built me a little grist mill when I was in fourth grade. He was brilliant. And he created amplifiers for music. And pretty much everything was okay when there was music playing. And my next stepfather came along when I was 13. And he had been a live sound engineer from Benny Goodman, which I did not know until I decided I wanted to be an engineer. I had no idea that he had been an engineer. A sound yeah. engineer. It's strange status. My grandfather worked with many goodness musician. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Before he became a lawyer and he gave it up. But, yeah, you know. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Benny Goodman, he moved in a lot of circles. <laughs> Did he go to Yale? So, and he was also an electrically. So yeah. both of his stepfathers were tri- electrical engineers. Mm-hmm. And he uh, built his own bicycles. And I admired him greatly. He was a very quiet man. And uh, quite the opposite from Wayne. But they were both hugely into music. So... We, he had any, he sold electronic equipment for professional and commercial consumer audio. So we always had like speakers and I always had the best stereo system of anybody. And so I know it influenced me. I had access to music through both of them, but I didn't love it because of them by any means. It, no. it was very it was separate. part of your language it was group. yeah it was my language i just it just happened to be there so i had my the first quadraphonic system because of jack you know and he had access to sam goody so i always got the greatest albums for christmas and my birthday since that's all i ever wanted was and when i graduated college he was able to get me a pa system i didn't want a car i wanted a pa system so i could run a sound business because mm-hmm. that was where i was at 
And he was able to provide that because of his business. And he played loud organ music and classical music, anything with the deep tones. And we had speakers that my mother hated. They were six feet tall, four feet wide by Bozak and then by JBL, whom we worked for as well. And super Trump and just like, bam, you know, just he loved the power of music. And that's why we listen to like church pipe organ music because the low end is so low. And it would just rattle the house. But he was, and our times together were generally spent quietly listening to classical music while I read the things. And, you know, he, I told him I wanted to be an engineer. He hooked me up. But he didn't, you know, I wanted. The passion has to come from yourself, though. Yeah. It, honest to God, it did not, I had no idea he had done live sound for Benny Goodman at yeah. the Yale Bowl. Yeah. Until I had been an engineer for 15 years. It's that generation, too. Sometimes they were a bit quiet. They just, you know, yeah. they just keep it to themselves. Well, he was, like, from a poor farm, and, yeah. you know, he made a lot of himself. But yeah. he was very, very within, withheld. But he was cool. You know, he built bikes and bicycles, and he rode a motorcycle, and he loved music. And I could never get through. Uh, Therapy session here. Uh, so, I know. It, it's good because, you know, it's important it's to understand where we come from. Yeah. Yep. And and that, and that was part of who I was, but you know, I was always my own wild child. Believe me, oh, I drove no. him insane with <laughs> my getting in trouble. And you know, for me, it was all about really music. Just saved me every step of the way. And let's just say this: it's the arts do that. Well, they give you a focus. But music is like a journey. Yeah. it takes time. So you get into this movement. And you become an enveloped. I mean, I had these great headphones. I used to fall asleep every night in high school to Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Wow. Every night, you know, with these huge, beautiful AKG K240s. You know, what high school kid knows what an AKG K240 is? Well, but every recording studio knew what they were when I got older. It sounds like a wonderful childhood with its, like every child yeah. has its, its blips yeah. or whatever. It bits and some not good bits. I often find it, it makes us appreciate the good bits, yeah. you know. I think we want to look for perfection or look for, you know, absolute unconditional love or things. Yeah. Does it exist? I don't know. It's like we have unrealistic expectations. I think no parent can ever do it perfectly for the yeah. kid. And therefore the kid is never going to feel that they were perfectly parented. Very few. I and do have a friend who says he was perfectly, not perfectly parented, he just was incredibly happy. Yeah. And you know what? It set him up for um, a lot of disappointment in life because he was... So nobody else was time in life. Yep. Yeah. And he was so shocked when, like, someone did him wrong. This is, like, yeah. reality. Yep, yep. yep. <laughs> Welcome. Why? You told me a lie? What? <laughs> you know, and he's a very cool guy himself. He's one yeah. of my closest friends. He's 89 years old, and, and he says that my stories have absolutely shocked him into, you know, things he had never, ever thought about happening when you were younger. Because he... Yeah. So he was too... You can be too, he was too happy. And you do wonder if the parents are keeping it to themselves. Are they actually yeah. nourishing themselves? It's a sacrifice in a way. Oh, uh, what a job to be a parent. But I want to ask you before uh, we go, is that, you know, you seem from the very beginning so driven and it seems like you would take on things even if you just weren't sure how to do it. But oh, absolutely. That's the only way to learn. In my, in my mind? Yeah. Absolutely. You just pick up that guitar and play, you know, exactly. until you figure out how to do it. But not everybody oh, yeah. knows that. Not everyone knows how to have access to it. So, yeah, what is your message to students? And oh. what do you wish you had been told? Or what would you tell your young self? <laughs> do not waste your youth on being young. Oh, take the opportunities that you're handed. 
mm-hmm. and do not squander them for uh, superficial things like social peer pressure. Learn to love yourself as soon as you can and know that if you are different, that that is the best thing. If you feel different from other people, do not let it isolate you. Know that that is the greatest gift you will ever be given and you will not know that until you are older. Take on the world. Allow the world to give you what it has to give you. Get rid of your fears as soon as possible. Do not live a high-risk life that is not outliving your fears. That is, that's a different way of approaching it. But don't let fear drive you. Don't let fear of other people and opinions ever drive you. You know? Or you'll take that with you, and it will run you. Most people are driven by fear. We have to live for ourselves, not for others, in a bad way. Well, that said, having compassion for others is actually probably as important. Mm -hmm. But not the fear of their judgment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can, yeah, it's hard to have compassion for other people's judgment. But, you know, that's really hard. That's the hardest thing of all, is to understand that people are, will may judge because they are afraid. That's their job to figure that out. No, I, I think I have got to put compassion for others on the first order of business is to understand that we are all one and we are all the same. And deep down inside, under the skin, we all want exactly the same thing. So go get what moves you, figure out what moves you. And if you can't figure out what you're passionate about, keep chipping away at it till you do, because without that, you will live a life of quiet desperation or not so quiet des- desperation that everyone has the capacity to feel passionate about something. And if you don't, find out what. That's really beautiful and inspiring. And I think that no matter what discipline students are thinking of approaching, whether it's music or any aspect of the arts or even the sciences, sure. that they can get something from what you've shared. So- Good. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks it's for letting pleasure. me go on and on. This has been quite a journey. Thanks yes. very much, Cynthia Dennis, for sharing your creative process, your yes. life, and we look forward to all your future projects. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been okay. a real pleasure, man. Okay. Great. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yan Molshaski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Mira Potla. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.